Hi everyone, you're listening to the Health and Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Alison Mitchell, a practicing naturopath, and you can find me on naturopathnsw.com.au. These podcasts will feature discussions on various health conditions, health tips, and nutrition from a naturopathic perspective. Sometimes it's just me, sometimes I'm just guests. All the time, I hope to give you information on health and wellbeing with the aim to Remember that all information is general and not a specific recommendation that replaces consulting with a practitioner. Please talk to your healthcare practitioner before undertaking any changes to your treatment regime. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is the last episode that's going to be called the Health and Wellbeing Podcast. From here on, this podcast is called Guts and Gobbits. Today, I'm talking with a herbalist from America all about celiac disease. And it's an awesome episode because we're combining herbal medicine and celiac disease information. If you have celiac disease or you know someone that has celiac disease, then give it a listen because we're not just talking about what it is, but we're also talking about how to help heal your gut while you have celiac disease and also talking about how herbs and supplements are commonly contaminated. So if you have celiac disease, we talk about the things that you need to be considering, things to watch out for. I really hope you guys can get something out of it. Let me know what you think. Give the podcast a review and please share to anyone that might benefit from this. Hi, everyone. I'm here today with Sarah Corbett. She's a clinical herbalist and creatrix of Rowan and Sage, which is a small batch apothecary, heart of Atlanta, Georgia. Sarah's path as a herbalist blossomed from the experimentation with plants to support her own health challenges, specifically through her experience with celiac disease, which is what we're going to be talking about all today. Sarah's forever been a student of magic and of nature and the human body. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Psychology and she has an additional focus in nutrition. She has certifications from the College of Purna Yoga and she has over seven years of combined self-training and formal study in herbal medicine. So through her work in Rowan and Sage, Sarah often offers a line of celiac safe herbal products, which are made from locally grown herbs that are in sourced from her bioregion. And she also offers one-on-one wellness consults to help others with experiencing their own vibrant well-being. So you can find more about Sarah on rowanandsage.com. And I am just so excited to have her here to talk about this today. If you've ever followed her on social media, you see that she has the most beautiful herbal products. So thank you so much, Sarah. Oh, I'm so excited me. to be here today and to talk about celiac and herbs and my experience. So thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm so excited. So we'll be talking a lot about celiac disease, but I did just want to start by just briefly talking about the herbs that you have there. So you, you grow quite a lot of herbs yourself, don't you? Yes, I do. Um, I'm doing my best to grow as much as I can in a small community plot, um, but I grow a lot in my garden and wildcraft fairly frequently here in Atlanta. That's so beautiful. Here in Australia, the environment is not particularly conducive to growing that many medicinal plants. We are fairly dry and arid. So that sounds like you've got a good environment there for you. But I think the trick <laughs> would probably be watering the garden too. I should probably yeah, I mean, more Georgia of that. historically <laughs> has been a major agriculture state for the United States. So oh. um, like my ancestors here were farmers. Some of them are still farmers. So we've got pretty decent dirt and it's very humid. Like disgustingly so so if you plant something in the ground it will grow <laughs> oh, well that's um, 
that's a plus to humidity. I don't really like humidity, <laughs> but I guess that's a bonus. But <laughs> all right, awesome. So I guess let's get started about celiac because even though I could talk your ear off all day about herbs, <laughs> uh, we only have about an hour <laughs> in which to cover all of this information. So let's just start with the basic. So What's the difference between gluten intolerance, gluten allergies, and celiac disease? Yeah, so gluten intolerance, which is what's been coming up more and more lately, um, it's also referred to as non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And it's when people have a negative reaction to foods with gluten, but they don't actually mount an inflammatory immunological response. So that's when you know, you're eating some gluten and you're having like dyspepsia and distension and abdominal bloating and like feeling fatigue, stuff like that but if the doctors were actually to do a test you wouldn't be showing the same inflammation markers that you would see in celiac disease so the symptoms of non-celiac gluten sensitivity or gluten intolerance are super similar to celiac it's just that there's that lack of intestinal damage um, but these days about 1 in 20 people do have a negative reaction to foods with gluten but some research is saying that it might actually be a FODMAP intolerance and not really just gluten at all, uh, which I think is fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, gluten intolerance is a diagnosis by exclusion. There's no like testing for it right now. Yeah, and gluten allergy is a little bit different altogether to both of those because it's an actual proper well, allergy, and, isn't it? So hold. Well, and so with gluten reaction. allergies, I think it's more what you'd be referring to as a wheat allergy. Um, so there isn't just an isolated. <laughs> there isn't Thank just you. an isolated. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so with wheat allergies, you can be allergic to any of the four major. Um, proteins in wheat, so that's albumins, globulins, glidins, or gluten. So you could surely have a like an allergy to gluten, um, but you could also be allergic to the other proteins in wheat. So that's when you're having like a true, like major immune, life-threatening potential anaphylaxis type of reaction. And so a lot of people think that like gluten allergy is the same thing as celiac disease, but in celiac you don't have anaphylaxis. It's very very different. Yeah. So what's actually occurring in celiac disease if someone does eat gluten? Yeah. So with celiac, if someone eats gluten, whether knowingly or unknowingly, their body mounts a huge immune response that attacks the small intestinal lining, um, which causes damage to the villi, which then is going to impair nutrient absorption and creates a whole systemic inflammatory response that doesn't just affect the small intestine, even though the primary damage is located there. But there's also research showing that the inflammation crosses the blood-brain barrier and affects pretty much every single organ system in the body. But ultimately it is like an immune, an autoimmune response to the presence of gluten in the digestive system that attacks the small intestine. So those little villi, I, I like to sort of go like this when I talk about villi, because I imagine <laughs> them as being little fingers in the intestine, but they're like very, very small. And so on, on that is where you absorb all your nutrients and you've got that surf, beautiful surface area. So if that's flattened, then if that's damnations, isn't it? Yes. So, and that's actually the best way for someone to get diagnosed or is the final diagnosis step after they've been screened is going in and actually seeing what's going on with the villi and how damaged is it. But just like you said, they're like a bunch of little fingers. So their whole purpose is to increase the amount of surface area you have in your small intestine so that you can better absorb the nutrients from your food. Mm -hmm. So if that villi has been completely eroded, 
then not only are you going to have intestinal hyperpermeability issues, but like super intense micronutrient deficiencies um, mm-hmm. that will contribute to a whole other set of physiological issues. Yes. Well, so how long does it take to heal if someone has had that VI damage? Now, see, that is something that's so difficult to ascertain because celiac affects everyone very, very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, I can say within my own experience, I was diagnosed very early, luckily. Um, it only took me about two years to get my diagnosis. And for some people, it takes more than 10 years. And the estimate right now is that more than 80% of people with celiac are living undiagnosed. Um, wow, that's massive. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, it's a really hard diagnosis to get. And I also think a lot of people are just living with digestive pain, not knowing that they could feel well. Um, but so when it, in my own experience, it took me about two years of eating totally gluten-free, like never accidentally eating gluten for me to stop having symptoms. And then for those first couple of years, if I would get cross-contaminated, it would take several months to rebound. Um, Now it's not as intense. I'll have like a week or two down if I get cross-contaminated because I've given my small intestine a long period of time to heal. I was diagnosed almost eight years ago. Um, So it's really going to depend on how long someone's been left untreated Mm. and if they're actually truly maintaining a gluten-free diet. which is incredibly difficult to do. Oh, yeah. Um, The celiac diet is the most difficult medically necessary diet out there. Um, And unless you're going to, like, stay in your house 100% of the time, you're going to get cross-contaminated out in the world. (laughs) Yeah, it's so hard. And I don't know what it's like there, but here, like a lot of my patients have experienced quite a lot of issues in terms of people sort of dismissing it and they, you know, go to a cafe or a restaurant and like I'm celiac and like, sure, sure, you're fine. Whereas like, that's just not going to do Yeah, <laughs> and I think it's partially yeah. because people don't understand the difference between celiac disease and gluten intolerance. Yeah. Um, so I think if food service workers understood that, oh, they're increasing my risk of cancer by four times every time they put gluten on my plate. They might be kind of like, hmm, <laughs> we should be more aware of this. Seriously, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but there's a lack of education, Yeah, which is strange also because the disease has been well known for a very long time <laughs> and it affects one out of every hundred people. So it's not incredibly rare. Um, I mean, it's, it's still a 1%, but it's... It's well known enough <laughs> that you'd hope that people would have more awareness about it. Considering how many people are in the world, that's a lot of people with celiac disease. Yeah, and even with the people who are diagnosed, what I find really interesting is that women are two to three times more likely to be diagnosed. And of the people who have been diagnosed, like 60 to 70% of them are women. Mm. So I feel like there's also this piece of women who are saying, oh, I have celiac, please respect me, please take care of me, medical system, please acknowledge me, and having to deal with their, them being female, getting in the way of them getting quality care. Yeah. Um, That's really interesting, and I guess there's a few different factors involved in that. 
women are more likely to develop autoimmune conditions than men, but women are also more likely to go to the doctor than men who perhaps are more likely to hide their pain away or just dismiss it. But at the same time, because women go to the doctor more often, they're seen as complaining. And I'm using inverted commas here because I don't think it should be viewed as complaining if you're actually going to a doctor to ask for help. Uh, but generally, there is a high incidence of women with chronic diseases and autoimmune diseases being dismissed way too much. All sorts of things contribute to that, like she might be making it up, she might be a hypochondriac, that sort of mentality that some people might have like in regards to, to women. I remember hearing the story about Serena Williams, who had just had a baby, and she had actually come close to dying and if she hadn't put her foot down and demanded more investigations and more care she actually could have had a really serious issue where she might have actually died because she's prone to clots and she knew that and you can often get clots after having a baby after having a c-section which she needed to have she was feeling fatigued and out of breath and she was worried about there being another clot uh, but the medical staff were dismissing her, so she had to put her foot down, and, and yeah, it was there, so lucky she did. I, uh, and I hear stories like that all the time, and it's definitely a big piece of my diagnosis story, and mm. I have significant medical trauma because of my diagnosis experience, and well, at the time, I didn't really know what was going on because I was so ill, and I was a minor, and my, my parents were taking, like, having all the conversations with the doctor um, but we stopped seeing my gastroenterologist and I didn't know why and then a few months later I was going through my medical records and I found a letter from the doctor to my parents saying that he was no longer going to treat me I had anorexia and I need to go to psych and I remember finding that and like having a full breakdown and just being so frustrated of I'm in pain like, every time I eat something I feel terrible this has nothing to do with my mental health. I mean, it's contributing to poor mental health for sure, but there's something wrong in my body. And I knew that. I knew that intuitively. I knew that from trying to go gluten-free and then magically feeling better. Um, but yeah, I, I personally am not currently seeing a gastroenterologist, even though I'm supposed to, because I have yet to find someone who would actually understand and show compassion and listen to my experience. And I truly believe that that has everything to do with me being a young woman. Mm -hmm. So when you were initially diagnosed, what were the issues that you were um, presenting with, like that you were talking to your doctor and getting help with? Yeah, so I was, it's, it's kind of difficult to remember now that it's been so long, um, but major digestive pain every time I ate. I was losing a lot of hair. Um, I lost like 90 pounds in one year. And even though I was still, I was like a heavier child, so losing weight wasn't the worst thing in the world for me, but I was still at a healthy weight when I had lost all the weight, but I looked like sunken in. Uh, I looked malnourished for being a healthy weight. Mm. And I was having anxiety attacks all the time, like constantly. Um, and I remember being in school one day and sitting down with my lunch in the cafeteria and looking down at this meal that was like bread and cheese and saying, wow, I think this is what's killing me. And going to my mom and saying, I think I might be allergic to gluten. Uh, or have an intolerance to gluten. And so then we started going down the road of diagnosis. 
Um, but my diagnosis process was not easy because I gave up gluten right away. And to get a proper diagnosis, you need to be producing antibodies. If, and if you're not eating the gluten, then your immune system's not making the antibodies. So I don't have as clear cut of a diagnosis as some people out there. Yeah, that's so tricky that the whole diagnosis process is really challenging. And I find that like trying to investigate it can be really challenging for a lot of my patients as well, because there is a little bit of that barrier too, um, particularly about the, the cost associated with doing mm -hmm. the genetic testing. Um, so what's the process in terms of getting the, the proper testing for celiac disease where you are? Yeah, so there's a couple of different ways to get tested for celiac disease. Um, generally speaking, if someone knows that they have a family member who has celiac, it's a really good idea to get screened. Because the tricky thing about celiac disease is that you, it is a genetic predisposition. It's hereditary. Um, you have to have the genes to have celiac but you don't have to, you don't always get celiac if you have the genes. So even if you go and you get genetic testing um, with the presence of those two genes, um, it doesn't mean that you're going to get celiac. It doesn't mean that you have celiac, um, but it is a good marker for some people to check that if they're having a hard time getting diagnosed. Um, so here for screening, you can just get a simple blood test if you're concerned about having celiac disease but like i said you have to be eating gluten for those antibodies to show up um which for some people is totally not worth it if they've figured out that wheat barley and rye which are the gluten containing grains if they've figured out that that's what's giving them pain they're going to reasonably stop eating it um so a lot of doctors recommend doing a gluten challenge which is I refused to do it. I wasn't going to subject myself to this, but it's eating like two slices of bread or just a significant amount of gluten every day for six to eight weeks and then going and having your testing done. Mm, it's, um, a long time. <laughs> it's a long time to be in incredible pain. And now for some people, like for me, I'm very highly sensitive. I get very, very sick. I've fainted immediately after getting ill, like passed out on the sidewalk and been found by a neighbor 30 minutes later. Um, for some people, they're asymptomatic. You, I mean, you can have celiac disease and have no symptoms. So doing a gluten challenge might be like totally fine for you. Um, but then there's some other testing that can be done to check for a celiac. Um, so some of that is like IgA and EMA tests, um, which are all blood tests. And then the ultimate gold standard for confirming if you have celiac is to do an endoscopy. Yes. So a lot of fun as well. Yeah. <laughs> the whole process much fun. <laughs> uh, you're getting poked and prodded a lot. Um, my endoscopy wasn't, I mean, you're, you're under, like they put you under, so you don't feel anything. Um, but they fill your small intestine up with air which is very uncomfortable for like three to five days afterwards. And then I had uh, a really bad reaction to tomatoes like a week after my endoscopy where it felt like my stomach was on fire. And so I ended up having to go to the ER to make sure that they didn't puncture my esophagus. I had to drink like the barium and... <laughs> oh my gosh. All that stuff. So there's complications that can arise from an endoscopy. Yeah. I mean, it's rare, but like they could theoretically perforate your esophagus. Um, so in a perfect world, someone would be eating gluten for a while, 
having symptoms, get the blood test, get a positive, stop eating gluten and feel better. But it, that's so rarely what I see. Uh, like that's, the, that's not a story I hear commonly from people who have celiac disease. Mm. Um, I hear about a lot of false positives and false negatives. And it's, it's a very difficult disease to diagnose. Hmm. I have that same experience in my clinic. So it's very challenging. And um, it's that that issue where you're going gluten-free, you don't want to re-challenge it because you're worried about getting the repercussions, but then you can't get that confirmation. But my concern is that if you are actually celiac, then you have to be that much stricter. So having the diagnosis gives you that um, that rule that you have to be so much stricter so you have you have to make sure there's no contamination at all but if you are gluten intolerant then there can be that slight amount of contamination um, so I guess sometimes it could potentially be worth it <laughs> doing the challenge in that sense yeah hmm, okay so do you think um, that the incidence of celiac disease has actually been increasing? According to the research, yes. Um, and some people would hypothesize that it's because the awareness has increased, right? More people are going to the doctor, but other research is saying that that's actually not the case, which is super interesting. Um, and, but the reason for the rise is unknown. <coughs> Excuse me. Right. But the researchers ex uh, suspect that it's environmental factors. So like, there were some studies done in Sweden. So there was this like, epidemic of celiac disease in Swedish infants. So some researchers were trying to figure out if it had to do with gluten exposure and like amounts of gluten exposure with babies and through breast milk and whatnot. But they couldn't really find a correlation there. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's still research that needs to be done on whether the introduction of gluten is a contributing factor to development of the disease. Um, but I think, and this is my story with celiac, there definitely is a relationship with viral infections and celiac disease, and especially Epstein-Barr virus, which is how I, I know that's when my celiac disease was triggered. I had Epstein-Barr and swine flu within the same six months. Um, yeah, and that kind of immune stress is definitely going to trigger some changes in the body. Um, so while it's on the rise, we don't really know entirely why, but and I mean, don't quote me on this. I haven't done research on it. I would infer that with the world that we're living in today and the amount of stress that our bodies are constantly under and the compromisation of our immune systems and the rise of autoimmunity, I would assume that it's more likely that if for someone who has a genetic predisposition, when they experience such a stressful event on their body, that they're more likely to actually display signs of celiac disease. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think uh, you've made some really good points there that like, you know, we've got these genetics. So you've got the genetics for the celiac disease, but it's the environment that you're exposed to, the, the bugs that happen to come in and cause your immune system to go like, what the hey now? And <laughs> there's a few different theories with that. Um, molecular mimicry or um, like a few other things along those lines where like basically your body is like thinking that the little antigens on the virus or the bacteria are very similar to the uh, parts of your body that they're trying to attack and sometimes the the virus will actually load on anti um, like receptors onto our own tissues as well it's such a tricky thing but 
the the um, hormonal changes are of quite young at the time. So you, were you personally going through menarche around that time as well? Yeah, so I had already, I started my period the week before my first day of eighth grade. So mm-hmm. I'll never forget that. Um, and I was diagnosed when I was 17. Um, but at that time, my, so my mom was premenopausal and we were both taking the same amount of progesterone. <laughs> Um, at that time because I, I was producing none. And I definitely think that that was in relationship to the illness that I was experiencing. Yeah. Because of course, of course, if my body wasn't absorbing nutrients, mm. like naturally my follicular phase was not doing its thing. I wasn't, probably wasn't ovulating. I have no memory of if my cycle was regular at the time, but I was taking progesterone. Um, and I was really struggling with major insomnia. Um, and just, I mean, if you were looking at it from a traditional Western herbalism model, like major dry atrophy, <laughs> every single one of my organ systems. Um, so that menstrual health piece was definitely present for me. Yeah. It's really interesting as well that there are some links between other hormonal issues and celiac disease. You know, if a woman comes to see me for assistance with fertility, I very commonly want her to get screened for celiac disease. I think it's such an important thing to rule out. It affects how many nutrients you absorb. And as you've said, there's that dryness and atrophy of tissues that can also extend to other mucous membranes. And you need to be uh, all have all of those areas healthy for fertility. So if there's dryness and atrophy in the vagina and the uterus as well and then there's going to be a a hostile environment for implantation are there any other links between celiac disease and other hormonal or any other conditions too similar to that yeah so just generally speaking with celiac there are over 200 known symptoms um, which can occur in the digestive system or outside of the body so Um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. And every person I've spoken to who has celiac experiences it very differently. Like I have one friend who she just has major peripheral neuropathy. Um, so if she eats gluten, it's like really intense nervous system types of stuff and Mm -hmm. brain fog and fatigue. I have other friends who will just like cyclically vomit when they eat gluten. Um, for me, I get classic autoimmune symptoms like joint pain, and I feel like an arthritic 80-year-old woman, and migraines, and digestive pain, and um, skin rashes, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but celiac, I mean, I would be hard-pressed to say that it doesn't affect every single organ system in the body. And in regards to fertility and just menstrual health in general, one, some of the major symptoms of untreated celiac are missed menstrual periods and infertility or like recurrent miscarriages. Mm. Um, so the implications just on the endocrine system as a whole are huge. Uh, and I think one of the often overlooked aspects of celiac disease is the mental health component. Yes. So glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Um, Because I mean, celiac generally, we know that the inflammation is going to cross the blood brain barrier. We know clinically that it's going to alter our brain chemistry for months. Um, And of course, celiac also really impairs gut motility. So our serotonin production and reuptake is going to be impaired there as well. Um, but just the aspect, like take all that away. 
and just look at the aspect of living with a chronic disease that can never be cured, that you really have only so much control over. And like the social exclusion aspect of it, the social anxiety, trying to get people to understand what you're going through, just that, that sense of isolation that you experience mm -hmm. when living with this disease is, I would say, way worse than having a stomach ache for a whole week. Yeah, such an important point. How often does it pop up in your head? Like, <laughs> how much of your day do you spend thinking about it? Um, well, I don't actively spend time thinking about um, like my actual having celiac disease. At this point, I've gotten used to it. But I have organized my entire life around my disease. Mm. Um, working for myself is because I have a chronic disease. I am downright unemployable. I never know when I'm going to be ill. Um, so I have built a career for myself out of my home where everything here is safe for me. Um, and that, while it's really wonderful for my health, it, I have definitely gone into phases of like extreme agoraphobia and I do have a lot of social anxiety and fear of like getting sick somewhere and being stuck there, of not having snacks that are going to, that I can actually eat and like my blood sugar dropping and not being able to get home to my safe bubble. Mm -hmm. um, so those are more of the effects that I experience on a daily basis. It's just this like underlying fear of something might go wrong. I might not be well prepared. Um, but at this point, I mean, I, when I knew that I was, I needed to go gluten-free, I was just like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Um, I have never wanted to eat a slice of cake. And like, I've, I've never knowingly broken my diet. Um, this is my lifestyle now and I have resigned myself to that and I just became a really good cook. So it's fine. <laughs> awesome. Well, I will pick your brain about some gluten-free <laughs> later. <laughs> Okay, so um, what do you feel are some of the biggest misunderstandings around celiac disease? I think out some there? of it is what we we started this conversation on: just like yes, people yeah. not knowing, just people not knowing what it is and how it actually affects people, because it's definitely a silent disease. Like you, unless you have dermatitis herpetiformis, which is like the skin rashes associated with celiac, no one could look at me and know that I'm chronically ill. Mm. Um, no one's going to know that I'm so fatigued and I can't get out of bed today because my entire body hurts because I'm experiencing a flare. Um, I look like a healthy young person who can function in the world. So there's that aspect of it. But the biggest misconception around celiac is that going gluten-free is enough because it's just not. Not if you want to heal properly. Mm. Um, and it really depends on your level of damage. Like okay. if you've been living with celiac undiagnosed for 10 years, who knows if you're truly going to recoup the integrity of your intestinal villi. Mm -hmm. So can we, can we talk about that now? Can we talk about, you know, how can we heal yeah, with celiac absolutely. disease? Um, I think that supplementation is super key. So besides just going gluten-free, I mean, you've got to like resign yourself to doing that 100% of the time and not eating out and um, cleansing your entire home of contaminants. Um, and that's a whole, that's a whole conversation in itself. 
but other things that you can do to heal is to support the nutrients that you've been missing all this time. Um, and some of the most important nutrients that celiac kind of robs from you is protein, zinc, iron, calcium, magnesium, folic acid, selenium, your B vitamins, vitamin E, K, and D. So just even taking a nice, I mean, that's like all the vitamins. <laughs> I know, I know, like, oh, just then. <laughs> yeah, just a couple. Well, and then if you were to compound celiac the celiac relationship between celiac and Hashimoto's or other thyroiditis then you've got like a whole bunch of other nutrients that you need to be getting um but just taking a nice supplement <laughs> a nice well-rounded vitamin is yep. so important like for the first three or four years that I had celiac no one told me that I should just be taking my vitamins um did they and say just eat a well-balanced diet. Yeah. They're like, just go gluten-free and you'll feel better. And while, yes, it's such an important step and you absolutely will feel better, there's just so much more that you can do to heal. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it took me two years of a gluten-free diet to be asymptomatic. Mm -hmm. um, so I only can help but wonder how I would have felt if I had been doing more mm -hmm. yeah. at the time. So some of the literature I've seen says that it takes about 12 months for the villi to repair after having um, some exposure. But I think that like from what you've experienced as well, that after the, the initial diagnosis, it would take possibly even longer again. So knowing what you know now, would you be doing anything differently, like using herbal medicine to tonify the villi and supporting the immune system? Absolutely. And through that experience is how I ended up coming to herbalism. Um, at the time, I actually don't have like a perfect positive nice piece of paper that says, oh, she has celiac disease. Um, I was diagnosed by a naturopath looking at all of my stuff and saying, this is fairly clear. <laughs> you definitely have celiac disease. Um, and so I was working with a, on a bunch, I was on a bunch of different herbs through him and like my liver was almost failing. So I was on a whole mm -hmm. liver protocol at the time. And so I was taking herbs that were definitely helping the process. But um, during that time in my life, I got very, very close to simple plantain. Plantain. Just good old plantain. <laughs> yeah, can you explain a little bit about what plantain does? Yeah, so plantain is a nice vulnerary herb, meaning that it helps to heal the tissue. It like helps to knit things back together, mm. which if we're looking at a damaged small intestine, that is very, very key. Um, it's also a little mucilaginous, so it's like really nice and cooling and supportive for the intestinal tract that's experiencing high inflammation. Mm -hmm. So, and plantain was just growing in my backyard. So I was going to say that's even better <laughs> because like most people all over the world have plantain. Mm -hmm. And so you were, you were using the fresh yes, plantain. So I was just tossing that into teas and eating it in salads and, um, so that was one of my favorite herbs. And just generally speaking for celiac, what I use in my own life and what I like to recommend to other people are any herb that's vulnerary. My favorite is calendula. Mm -hmm. um, and also because vulnerary hits some of these other herbal actions, but also lymphatic herbs to support the galt in the small intestine, just like lymphatic tissue. Um, in your small intestine, inflammation modulators and adaptogens, astringents, bitters, carminatives, your typical GI herbs. Um, 
And so the ones that I tend to reach for the most in my practice are calendula and cleavers, peppermint, marshmallow, meadowsweet, chamomile, um, reishi and licorice mm -hmm. together is like the perfect blend for someone with autoimmunity. Um, so that's that what I tend beautiful. to do. <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> okay. And so do you typically do um, liquid extracts or teas or as you said with plantain, you're actually including it into your food too, which I love. And so I just, in my own approach as an herbalist, I really try to create a holistic protocol. So the first step is really food and what can we bring into the food to make sure that you're adequate, like you're getting as many nutrients as you possibly can from food. But also with celiac, we need to be really aware of, oh, there is malabsorption there. So we need to make sure that we're providing herbs in the best possible way for them to be absor uh, absorbed. Mm -hmm. So I really actually love tinctures because you can get that sublingual absorption. Um, but teas, if you can drink a quart infusion every day of some really nice healing, mineral rich teas, that is going to make a huge difference. Mm. Um, but perhaps my favorite way of getting herbs into the body is broth. Okay. Just broth all day long. <laughs> nice and so what herbs do you put in the broth or do you or just all of those ones that you're talking about before because like that's not something occurred to me <laughs> yeah, so I make bone broth I have it all year round I actually I need to make a big batch tomorrow um and I tend to put several reishi slices in there some astragalus as long as I'm not actively experiencing an intense immune reaction um and I put a ton of calendula in there some nettle seaweed lots of different mineral rich herbs um, and just the broth itself is going to be very healing and nourishing for the small intestine as well. That sounds amazing. So I love making broth too, but um, I haven't ever thought to put in calendula into that. Mm -hmm. I've done astragalus, but not, not calendula. Yeah. And uh, that's amazing. You just have to it's pop totally it in right at the oh. end. So <laughs> yes, just like it is very delicate to compared like to the astragalus it. and reishi woody and hard and dense. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Alrighty. So um, anything else you wanted to say about healing before? Yeah. Just, maybe just generally with the healing process, like of course it's going to occur to us to support the digestive system. But if I were to be creating a protocol for a client, I would be really like helping them out across the board with immunomodulators to tamp down that, that autoimmune response. Some really nice endocrine support is while I don't like to give everyone adaptogens, people with autoimmunity are typically on that depleted spectrum and are in need of some adaptogens. Um, and I'm also going to be doing that supplementation with vitamins and like full microbiome support as one of the most common um, implications of celiac disease is intestinal hyperpermeability. So like true leaky gut syndrome, not just the leaky gut syndrome that everyone in the alternative health community is touting that everyone has. I mean, like clinically, they can see it on a microscope that intestinal barrier is hyperpermeable. Mm. Um, and that can lead to major digestive dysbiosis. Um, SIBO is fairly common with people with celiac um, poor gut motility is very common with people with celiac. And if someone is having issues with the, the valves at the bottom of the small intestine, they're going to have an improper balance of, um, 
flora. So doing a nice probiotic and prebiotic protocol for people with celiac is definitely mm. high up on my list. Yeah, that would be so tricky though if you do have SIBO and celiac at the same time. So then it would be, be this completely different thing that you'd even have to consider again. Oh yeah, I, I have that. So <laughs> um, lots of berberin <laughs> helps. <laughs> That is a beautiful nutrient. <laughs> well, nutrient, phytonutrient, we'll say. <laughs> okay, awesome. So on your um, social media, you talk a lot about how the herbs that you use, you, you're really passionate about them being gluten-free and providing celiac-safe herbs for people. What are some of the things that people need to look out for um, with the herbs and supplements in terms of contamination uh, and, and things? Yeah, so I don't know about elsewhere in the world, but in the United States, there companies don't really like have to disclose if something might have gluten in it. They only have to include the basic allergen statement. So like if it was processed in a facility with wheat specifically, they have to say that. Um, but if it was grown in the same field as wheat, barley, or rye, they don't have to say anything. So consumers need to be hyper aware of anything that they're putting in their mouth, whether that's coming from the grocery store or like mushrooms are grown on barley substrate so you probably can't buy mushrooms from the grocery store um little things like that they need to be hyper aware of but with herbs specifically they really need to build relationships with farmers i haven't i've talked to all of the major herb distributors in the united states and i haven't found one that can absolutely guarantee that their products are 100 percent gluten-free um, I will say, and like this isn't sponsored or anything, but Mountain Rose Herbs has the best facility protocol that I have seen. They do their absolute darndest to keep allergens separate and to like really clean their equipment for processing. Um, but some of the other companies aren't as transparent about how they manufacture things and where they're coming from. Mm. So for me and my practice, I either grow it myself wildcraft it or I have direct relationships with farmers and wildcrafters. Mm. So the questions that I'm asking them, like we recently picked up a few pounds of milky oats um, from a farm in town. And so the question I was asking them was, have you ever, or especially in the last three years, grown wheat, barley, or rye in this field? Um, because there could still be some lingering grain in mm. the field. Is this grown near a field that has wheat, barley, or rye? Do you use equipment that is also harvesting from the wheat, barley, or rye fields? How about your kitchen or your facility? Are you, if you are uh, harvesting wheat, barley, or rye or processing that, are you adequately cleaning the facility according to GMP standards? You know, what is your process? Mm. And my preference, of course, is to find farms that don't even have gluten on the premises. Um, and I'm very lucky the farmer that I'm currently sourcing from has suspected celiac disease. So, <laughs> ah, so empathy. Yes. <laughs> so that is a very easy thing for me to know that her herbs are safe. Um, so first you need to be, you need to know the means of production. You need to know where your herbs are coming from and how they're being manufactured. But the second thing that people need to look out for is the actual menstruum or the, if they're using capsules, what they're encapsulated in. Um, because the supplement industry, while it's regulated, it's not as regulated as the um, pharmaceutical industry. Um, so they don't really have to tell you if they're using like gluten-free alcohol 
And while technically speaking, people with celiac should not have a reaction to distilled alcohol, um, some people do. Some people cannot tolerate grain-based alcohols. So use, finding manufacturers who are using cane alcohol or grape alcohol or certified gluten-free alcohol, which is what we use. Um, we use alcohol derived from corn. Um, that is going to be really important. And then also in that encapsulation, like the celiac community recently found out that Advil liquid gels, the coating uses wheat germ. Mm. And they don't have to tell people that. All right. So, they're, now, like the celiac community in America is trying to push a bill through Congress right now to create better labeling laws that are more transparent and help us to stay well. Because like you could be doing everything in the world to stay gluten-free, and then some medication that you're taking might have gluten in it. I know a while ago, there was some uproar in the like Hashimoto's community, because one of the most commonly prescribed thyroid medications might have had gluten in it which if you have Hashimoto's, like you've got to be gluten-free. The, 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 the incidence of celiac plus Hashimoto's is just too high to not be gluten-free. Oh, sure, yeah. So <laughs> the fact that the pharmaceutical industry knew this, they were producing a drug for these people that had something that was going to contribute to their autoimmunity. I mean, it's an ethical mystery, but it's something that they don't have to disclose. Mm. So... Yeah, that is very naughty. <laughs> you could yes. say that about a lot of the things that they do. <laughs> oh, that's so frustrating. But very interesting in terms of what you're talking about, about all the contamination and different things about that as well, because it's really something that you just don't mm -hmm. think about unless you are in that boat. Yeah, so, of course. Thank you for sharing. Ultimately, that. the best thing to do is to grow your own. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, the major thing that I think of in terms of gluten contamination is in medicinal mushrooms, which are becoming so popular now. Uh, but the mycelium is often it. But there are some that do water mycelium. But yeah. Well, and I didn't put two and two together on that until recently. I also think strawberries might make me sick um, because they tend to actually grow them on straw, which is most often wheat straw. Um, but yeah, I was at the farmer's market a couple months ago and I saw our mushroom farmer and I was looking at his shiitakes and I saw some barley grains in the bag. And I asked him like, you know, what substrate do you use? And he said he uses barley. And it had never, I never made a connection to having issues with mushrooms. But I did then remember that when I tend to eat mushrooms from the grocery store, I tend to have some type of digestive discomfort. So we're really lucky. I mean, I, I just, on my counter right now behind my computer is a two pound bag of reishi that was just wild harvested from the North Carolina mountains, right off of hemlock trees, dried safely, like wild crafted is definitely the way to go. But Amazing. it also isn't, it isn't the most sustainable <laughs> if you're like mass producing no. herbs, so. But something like, um like oyster mushrooms you could mm -hmm. potentially grow yourself um, if you've had a gluten-free thing as well so that sounds like something you could do <laughs> yeah and it's not very difficult to inoculate like shiitake logs 
Um, if you are crafty and you want to grow your own medicinal mushrooms, there are definitely ways to do it. But that is an area of herbal medicine that I'm very wary about if a company is not wild harvesting it. Um, and then, of course, I have my own concerns about sustainability, which is mm -hmm. why we focus on bioregional herbalism specifically. Yeah, that, that's such a tricky thing with herbal medicine as well, because it's it's that sort of like is the benefit of the, that particular herb greater than the damage that we're doing to the environment, which is really popular at the moment. But it is not a sustainable herb. And so it's something that um, like I'm really steering away from using as much these days because of that. Anyway, that's a whole other topic. <laughs> Okay, um, so do you um, have any particular gluten-free recipes that would be like your favorite? Well, so I was thinking about this. Um, so I personally follow the autoimmune paleo protocol um, because I was still having some related symptoms and I had, I've been struggling with SIBO for the last year, so my diet is fairly limited. Um, but with all that to say, Cooking gluten-free is just like cooking anything else, but you're going to be eating a lot more delicious whole foods and hopefully like seasonal produce and things like that. So kind of my favorite recipes are hashes. Like I really love a good sweet potato kale or like Brussels sprout hash with bacon and um, lots of sage and rosemary and like really delicious aromatic herbs. Um, I love soups and like miso broths with ramen are just so delicious and medicinal if you put some fun medicinal mushrooms in your starter broth. Mm. Um, and, but when it comes to like everything else with gluten-free, I mean, these days there are so many good recipes out there and you can go to Whole Foods or your, like a co-op and find pretty much anything you would want as a gluten-free alternative. When I was diagnosed though, it was like we had rice checks. <laughs> Um, but now you can get cookies and cinnamon rolls and pizzas and all these delicious things. Um, but I personally would opt for just whole foods, eating seasonally as often as possible, because it is also my belief and my experience clinically that most people with celiac disease have a ton of food intolerances. Um, so eating, like swapping your favorite breakfast cereal for just a gluten-free breakfast cereal still might not be the best option for you healing wise. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay. I'll ask you my next question for you then. And that I'm thinking you've already talked about plantain, but what is your second yeah, I, favorite herb for gut health? <laughs> so so plantain is definitely my favorite. favorite. Calendula is probably my second favorite and it's just such an easy one to grow. Um, it'll grow anywhere. It's prolific. Like every night lately I'm harvesting a hundred calendula blossoms and having to process them. Um, and it's just, it hits all of those points. It's astringent, it's vulnerary, it's bitter. Um, it is going to help. It's a little anti-inflammatory. So it's going to help modulate that inflammation in the digestive system. Um, so yeah, I really love that one. And it's a nice lymphatic herb. So it's going to assist with the, any lymphatic stagnation and congestion in the small intestine as well. Um, but my other herb that I use quite frequently, even though it's not the most sustainable herb, it's just so indicated with most people with celiac is Oregon grapefruit. Mm -hmm. um, it's just such a good herb for intest small intestinal issues and mm -hmm. such a nice bitter. Mm -hmm. um, 
So that's one I tend to use, especially in acute crises. Um, but yeah, I mean, just the most gentle, prolific herbs are so healing, like things like chamomile, mm. amazing. Yeah. So helpful. You don't need to have these really fancy, exotic, um, like trendy herbs to heal. I would imagine that most people who are growing in any temperate region can walk outside and five, five, and find five plants that are going to help their digestive system. <laughs> mm, for sure. One of the ones that I've got growing in my backyard at the moment quite a lot, and it's a very prolific weed but it's called um, cedar indigenous leaf and it's absolutely beautiful for healing the garden so you just if i've got a bit of an upset tummy then i'll just pull off a leaf and chew that and then the more you chew it the more mucilage comes out and so you can just imagine all that soothing that's taking oh. place in there it's absolutely beautiful but it just goes to show exactly what you say in that our the ones that we need are often right in our back door <laughs> yes and i mean also culinary herbs just like ginger and turmeric yeah are incredible as long as they're constitutionally indicated because they can be majorly heating um and then i i really like the majority of my personal protocol for myself is just bitter nervines like classic <laughs> yeah i take a lot of bitters uh mainly for that gut motility thing because i have a very stagnant digestive system um so i think my current blend is like turmeric ginger oregon grape um there's some dandelion root in there <clears throat> i think i popped a little bit of motherwort in it just for fun <laughs> <laughs> because why uh, would you put motherwort yeah. <laughs> it's amazing in everything but just bitters I, I was having a lot of digestive issues last fall because i had stopped taking my blends and just even just taking like bitters three times a day made my digestive woes so much different. Um, they're really, really powerful and they're going to have such a broad physiological effect and also help you digest better, help you absorb nutrients better. Um, so bitters are a really valuable aid for me. Um, so mm. yeah, that's, and then that's with fun. other like simple herbs, like rose, hibiscus, just, nice astringents that are easy to grow and can be found everywhere mm. so i really work with the simple herbs yeah. i don't work with lots of exotic stuff <laughs> no i like that i really do I, I like to use more of the like you said simple stuff too but then i mean that's sort of almost dismissive of those poor little herbs isn't it they're not simple they're just they're just there they're friendly mm -hmm. they're local well, and the other <laughs> one when you were mentioning the herb that's growing in your yard chickweed is the one here that's oh, like yes. oh such glorious, cooling, anti-inflammatory, lymphatic, mucilaginous, like gorgeous plant. Now don't eat too much of it. It'll give you a stomach ache, but like tossing some in your spring salad is just divine. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's another one of my favorites. That's beautiful. And that makes a fantastic cream. Mm. Yeah. I have it in hydrosol, but I haven't made the hydrosol into a cream yet, but I do like it for uh, redness on the face. <laughs> yeah. It makes you smell a little bit funky, though. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> awesome. So I think we've covered so much wonderful information about celiac. And I think that like, just the fact that, you know, we're talking about it and getting that information out there, I'm really hoping it's just going to be supportive of people who are listening who have celiac disease themselves or those that know someone with celiac disease that they can actually sort of get a bit more celiac to know that, you know, there are some extra things that you can do to improve your gut health and your overall health as well. 
to seek out a herbalist or a naturopath um, and to take those steps that you can to actually start supporting and soothing your gut health. So, um, Sarah, how can people get in contact with you if they want to learn more? And when, like, are you, you're on social media, what's your social media handles? Yeah, so our website is just www.rowanandsage.com and there you can find my whole line of totally celiac safe remedies, though I will say the majority of people who buy our products don't even have celiacs, so they're just, <laughs> it's a solid line. This is, it's a solid line of classic herbal formulas, but they are safe if you do have celiac, um, but I, I am limited to shipping only to the US, so I know you've got some Australian listeners, but you can find out more about my line there and where like my consultations and all that kind of stuff and I am accepting new clients for this summer so if you have celiac I would love to work with you Mm. um and then on Instagram which is where we're most active our handle there is just at Rowan and Sage um look for the profile with all the plants (laughs) Um, it's beautiful (laughs) and then we're also on Facebook and Pinterest so if you just search Rowan and Sage on either of those you'll find me Amazing. So thank you so much. And so you're off to bed now, I'm assuming, because it's quite late where you are. (laughs) I really appreciate you taking the time and um, staying (laughs) up late for me. Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And I'm so excited to be sharing more information on this. And so many people really struggle with this diagnosis. And I, of course, I do as well. But there is so much healing that can be done here. And I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to share more about that. Amazing. Well, thank you again. (laughs) So we'll leave it there and we'll say thank you, everyone. (laughs) Bye-bye.